910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. We are on part three of our series, Be Transformed. In the last episode, we looked at how we're transformed when we focus on the greatness of God, his majesty, his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and how we bring glory to God in light of his greatness. This week, we're going to look at how we're transformed by focusing on the goodness of God, because God is both great and good. He absolutely is. And there is a difference between the two. Like you said, Rose, God's greatness is that he is the almighty sovereign creator, master and sustainer of the entire universe. In comparison to God's greatness, we are small and insignificant, a fact that we need to grasp and have a proper view of us and God and give him his glory. However, along with being great, God is also good. His goodness is manifested in his care and his concern, his protection, his grace, his mercy. I wouldn't want to leave that out towards (laughs) his children. You know, and when you really think about it, it is mind blowing that considering God's greatness, that he's personally involved in every minute of his children's lives and he's good to us all. So while we may be insignificant in comparison to God, we aren't worthless not in God's eyes anyway. And that is a truth that when we really understand it, it brings about transformation. Amen to that. And that's why we're going to delve deeply into God's goodness today. In the last episode, we quoted R.C. Sprawl, who said that everything begins and ends with our view of God. You know, and along those lines, a casual view of anything in scripture pretty much fosters a casual view of everything in scripture. You know, false ideas about God leads to shallow transformation. And that's not what we're shooting for here. We're shooting for deep and true transformation. Only true knowledge of God will lead to that. That's why we want to be sure we take the time to study the biblical and the true God, not the God of anyone's making, not the God in our minds. And we want to study both his greatness and his goodness. Absolutely. And scripture has a lot to say about the goodness of God. And when we understand how precious we are to him, especially in light of his greatness, it will change everything for us. There are a lot of passages on the goodness of God, but perhaps nothing else emphasizes his complete goodness better than Psalm 23. And that's what we're going to concentrate on in this episode. It's a very familiar passage. We usually hear it at funerals, but it often gets glossed over as just a comfort passage. But there's really some deep theology in the passage. So I'll read it. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, Chris, this is a passage I memorized many years ago, and I can't tell you how many times I've brought it to mind, meditated on it, just recited it in my head because I needed to hear the words. Before we begin, though, let's just clear up what we mean by meditate or meditation, because meditation is a biblical word, but it's been hijacked by some others, especially Eastern religions. We talked about it in episode 39 in the yoga and alternative medicine episode, but just a very brief recap. Biblical meditation is deep thinking, wrestling with, and pondering of the word of God. Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, in contrast, define meditation as emptying your mind, something the Bible and Jesus specifically warns us against. In Matthew 12, 43 to 45, Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. Now, Chris, as you know, Jesus is talking about our minds. The house he's talking about is our minds. And his point is that empty minds are prone to evil influence. And Jesus had good reason to warn us. In Hinduism and Buddhism, they'll often tell you to repeat a mantra like Aum as you empty your mind. The idea is that it creates a vibrating frequency that's the same as the basic sound of the universe. So by chanting it, you're acknowledging your connection to nature and all other living beings, human and animal. Well, Rose, that's pantheism. Yeah. The belief that the universe is one and basically that everything is God and we can't do that. So not only does this form of meditation enter your mind and open you up to evil influence, you're courting those evil influences by committing heresy and spiritual idolatry. Absolutely. And this is an example of how more and more we're being pulled from the creator to the creation. In fact, that's pretty much the definition of pantheism. That's why real biblical meditation is so important. You know, rather than empty your mind or repeat some mindless chant, biblical meditation fills your mind. It fills your mind with the word of God. And remember, that's how we're transformed, by transforming our minds. Meditating on scripture is one of the most rewarding, faith-sustaining disciplines in the Christian life. And meditating on the goodness of God is something that will truly transform you. And that's why we're going to do that today. We're going to fill our mind with the goodness of God by meditating on Psalm 23. Chris, you read the Psalm. The first line is, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, let's stop there a minute. David wrote Psalm 23. And if there was anyone who understood what it meant to be a shepherd, it was David. So what does it mean that the Lord is our shepherd? Well, Jesus answers that in the parable in Matthew 18, verses 12 to 14. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep And one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, 
Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, these little ones isn't children. Jesus is talking about those who God has elected to save. And we know that because right before this, Jesus is talking about how only those who come to faith and humility like a child belong to him. So what does this tell us? It tells us that once Jesus, our shepherd, has us, we are his and we can never be taken out of his grasp. Even if we sin horribly or we backslide, he'll come and get us and bring us back into the fold of God's family. I just want to say it again, once for his, nothing and no one can snatch us out of his hand. That's right. And Jesus goes further with what it means that he's our shepherd in John 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He'll abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me, just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Just to note, the other sheep that are not yet in the sheepfold are the Gentiles who hadn't had the gospel gone out to them yet when Jesus was physically here on earth. So Jesus emphasizes that the Jews that belong to him and the Gentiles that belong to him are going to be one flock with one shepherd. And Chris, that's a picture of the church. Yes, it is. <laughs> and Jesus continues in John 10, 25 to 29, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So in just the first line of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, we see God's goodness manifested in Jesus, our shepherd, who cares for us to the point of sacrificing his life for us. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can take us out of his hand. No matter what we do, he'll bring us back to him. We can never be taken out of the Father's hand. He says that. That's right. And one last thing on Jesus being our shepherd. Jesus's original audience would have understood what Jesus calling himself their shepherd meant. The land surrounding Jerusalem and, in, and really in the overall region was pretty rough terrain. It was mountainous in some places. It was rocky in some places. It had deserts in other parts. Shepherds had to lead their sheep through this rough terrain. You know, sheep are basically stupid animals. Left on their own, they die. They needed to be led by someone in order to survive. The shepherd had to help them maneuver the rough ground so they could drink and eat while avoid being eaten themselves. Jesus was saying that the terrain his sheep, meaning us, would have to traverse would be rough, but he will be with us, leading us every step of the way. And ultimately, he'll get us where we need to go. And he's not going to let anything or anyone destroy us. 
He makes sure we have all we need. And here's Martin Luther's take on Jesus being our shepherd. He says, a sheep must live entirely by its shepherd's help, protection, and care. As soon as it loses him, it is surrounded by all kinds of dangers and must perish, for it is quite unable to help itself. The reason? It is a poor, weak, simple little beast that can never feed nor rule itself, nor find the right way, nor protect itself against any kind of danger or misfortune. And Rose, the next line of Psalm 23 is a direct result of the Lord being our shepherd. It says, I shall not want. So given the fact that Jesus laid his life down for us, protects us from being destroyed by wolves, leads us over the rough terrain that we may have to endure and holds us fast forever. What else more could we want? But the goodness of God doesn't stop there. The next line of Psalm 23 says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. Yes, the terrain we might have to trod as Christians can be brutal at times. But God's goodness extends beyond just leading us through it and protecting us. Jesus also leads us to places where we can lie down in green pastures and sit beside still waters. And I just love this picture. Green pastures of grass to eat and still water to drink is what the sheep need to live. It's a necessity. So this is a picture of God giving us what we need. But it's also a picture of God and his goodness giving us rest peaceful rest. It's not just pastures, it's green pastures. And you know, this brings to mind lush grass on a big open field that kind of makes you want to take your shoes off and just roll around in it. A psychological study found that spending time in natural green environments, even looking at pictures of green scenery in nature, has been linked to stress relief, better impulse control, and improved focus. And how about the water he leads us to? The waters are still. They're not rushing that would carry the sheep away. They're still and they're serene. And there's another study I found, and that said that science explains why we feel more relaxed by looking at water on a biological level. Seeing or hearing the soothing sounds of water triggers a response in our brain that induces a flood of neurochemicals. These chemicals increase blood flow to the brain and the heart, and that induces relaxation. Jesus doesn't just give us rest. He gives us rejuvenation. And the next line of the psalm says that. It says, he restores my soul. Here's what Matthew Henry, one of our favorite commentators, says. He says, God makes his saints to lie down in green pastures. He gives them quiet and contentment in their own minds, whatever their lot is. Their souls dwell at ease in him, and that makes every pasture green. The still waters by which he leads them yield them not only a pleasant prospect, but many a cooling draft, many a reviving cordial when they are thirsty and weary. God provides for his people not only food and rest, but refreshment also and pleasure. And that's the end of the quote. You know, this is an amazing example of God's goodness. He doesn't just provide for us. He provides lavishly for us. He doesn't just give us rest. He gives us pleasure and contentment. This makes me think about how God could have created the whole world in shades of gray. But he didn't. 
Instead, he used vibrant colors like the green of the grass and the blue of the water. And he did it for our pleasure so that we would look around at the amazing creation around us and not worship creation, but know without a doubt that it was all created by a powerful God who loves to give good gifts. I love that. Mm -hmm. And that's the stuff that restores our soul. It's the stuff that brings us back to God. It's what deepens our affection for and our enjoyment of God. We glorify God when we acknowledge his goodness in creation and in how he cares lavishly for us. We also glorify God when we rest in that care and love and allow it to refresh us. As theologian Barnes says, he restoreth my soul. Literally, he causes my life to return. Absolutely. And the next line says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This links God's goodness to his greatness. The Lord leads us down right paths. He leads us down godly paths. He leads us down paths of truth, paths that lead us to him, paths that transform us more and more to be like Jesus, not paths that bring us ruin. This correlates to Jesus's words on the narrow path and the wide path. The wide path leads to ruin and destruction, while the narrow path leads to life. Psalm 23 shows that David understood that it is only God who can lead us down the right path. On our own, remember we are sheep. We would wander off the right path and onto a path that leads to destruction, for sure. Yes. God leading and transforming his people results in them bringing him glory. This is all linked. You know, when we understand God's greatness, it will lead us to bringing him glory. When we understand God's goodness, it will lead us to bringing him glory. We were created for the greatest of gifts, knowing God. And when we accept that gift wholeheartedly and take the time and make the effort to know our God, we bring him glory. Everything comes back to our purpose. And Chris, that's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. These first verses of Psalm 23 are all about Jesus leading us and resting in him. But then there's some activity in the next line. The next line is, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. David goes from telling us how we rest in being led to lush green pastures and still waters and down paths of righteousness to us walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a huge contrast. <laughs> But when this line is taken in its entirety, it shows us mountains about the goodness of God. The valley of the shadow of death is just what it sounds like, a dismal, gloomy, dark place. This is another reminder that the way of Christians is not easy and it's not always bright. And we need to just look back through history to see that that's true from the beginning. Starting with the apostles, as we've looked at, many Christians have been persecuted and martyred. And for others, their lives have been marked with tragedy and devastation and heartache. It's not a rose garden. And we've probably all been in a dark place at one time or another. But David says, we pass through the valley of the shadow of death. While we as believers may face all kinds of trials and tragedies, death is not one of them. We don't walk through the valley of death. We only walk through its shadow. Charles Spurgeon says this about it. Nobody is afraid of a shadow, 
for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. And the shadow of death cannot destroy us. He is so brilliant. <laughs> it's so I would simple. just love to be inside his mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so simple, but it's so profound. It, and that's how he always is. Simple, but mm -hmm. profound. Sometimes things might seem that they're as bad as they can be, but they're not. If we belong to Jesus, things aren't even close to being as bad as they could be because we've already had our greatest need taken care of. In Matthew 4.16, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah prophesied that God would send a light, a savior to his people. Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 4, 16, he's that light. When we were dead in our sin, we existed in darkness. Dead people can't see light. But when God saved us, he pulled us out of that darkness and gave us vision to see the light. We're no longer blind. We can see clearly. And because we've been pulled out of darkness, we never need to fear death. We will never experience the darkness like the wicked do. God may make us walk through its shadow, but in his goodness, we will never have to walk directly through it. And because of that, Paul can say confidently in 2 Corinthians 4, 6-9, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Amen. And that's exactly why David can say with confidence that we don't need to fear evil. Like we said, we may have dark times in our life. We may even lose our life. We can get victimized by wicked people. We can get harassed by Satan and his demons, but we have no reason to fear any evil. First, for all the reasons we just said, but second and most important, because God is with us. Jesus is with us. The all-powerful, magnificent, sovereign Lord is with us. He's with you. He's with me. And Chris, is there anything that shows God's goodness more? Is there any truth that should cause us to want to transform more? And not only is he with us, but as our shepherd, he uses his rod and his staff to comfort us. David is obviously continuing with the shepherd theme. So let's define what a rod and a staff are and what they do. A staff is a long, thin wooden pole with a hook on the end. For the usage of a staff, we turn to pastor and former shepherd A. Philip Keller. He says there are three ways a shepherd manages his sheep with his staff. It is used in drawing sheep together to gently lift a newborn lamb and bring it to its mother if they become separated and for guiding sheep through a new gate or along a dangerous path. He uses the staff to press gently against the animal's side. This pressure guides the sheep in the way that the owner wants it to go. A shepherd is able to use the staff almost as well as he uses his hand. Keller says that he has seen a shepherd walk beside a pet or a favorite sheep with his staff gently resting on its back. 
It appears that they are in touch or walking hand in hand. Sheep are not easily trained, but this may be a method of training her as a leader. And you know, I love this picture. I think it exemplifies what Jesus does for us. I think it definitely does. And there's scripture verses that show this. First, that Jesus draws us together. John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I loved you. And Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. We've already seen Jesus say he brings us back when we get separated. But John 14, 2 to 3 shows how Jesus ultimately will bring us back to our father. He says, in my father's house, there's many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And finally, guiding us through something new or something dangerous. I can't think of a better verse that exemplifies the goodness of God guiding us through our life on earth than Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And let's not forget the last use of a staff on the sheep, to gently train the sheep as a leader. Whenever someone compliments our teaching or says that they've been blessed by it, our response is always all the glory to God. And that's not just some Christianese. We sincerely mean it because we know that the only reason that we are able to study God's word and teach it and write about it in books and have this podcast is because God has given us the privilege of doing it. And more than that, he's been with us every step of the way and he's been training us. It's not a privilege or responsibility that we take lightly, and we always give everything over to him. God does not just ask some of us to be teachers and leaders and expect us to do it on our own. He's right there with us. And the Holy Spirit has his hand on us and is guiding us, showing us how to love and lead his people. Absolutely. David says the rod of God also comforts us. While the staff is long and thin, the rod is short and club-like. The shepherd uses the rod to fight off any predators that are threatening the sheep. Doesn't take too much to correlate this with God's goodness to us. Fighting off predators? The goodness of God's all over that. Jesus has already taken care of defeating our three biggest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And just a little side note, Proverbs 13 is all about how to instruct, rear, and discipline our children. Proverbs 13, 24 is a well-known verse. It says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Well, many of us take this to mean that children should be disciplined by being beat with a rod or a cane. But the Hebrew for rod in Proverbs 13, 24 is the same word used in Psalm 23. In fact, the Hebrew word sabet is used 190 times in the Bible. Most times it refers to a shepherd's rod or scepter. So given what we know about how God protects us and defends us with his rod, it's most likely that this is what Solomon meant in Proverbs 13, 24. We're to protect our children as Jesus does. And part of protecting our children is to guide them, teach them what they need to know and bring them back if they go astray. We aren't saying spankings unbiblical. But God tells masters not to strike their slaves with a rod in Exodus 21. Therefore, when Solomon is talking about using a rod on our children, 
it's most likely he was talking of using it as a means to protect our children from influences of the world. In other words, train up a child in the way he should go and walking hand in hand with them, raising them to be the next generation of godly leaders. That's a great point. After this, David seems to shift away from the shepherd metaphor. In Psalm 23, 5, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Chris, I'm going to go to Charles Spurgeon again on this one. He says, the good man has his enemies. He would not be like his Lord if he had not. If we were without enemies, we might fear that we were not the friends of God for the friendship of the world is enmity to God. Thou preparest a table. Nothing is hurried. There's no confusion, no disturbance. The enemy is at the door and yet God prepares a table and the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. Oh, the peace which Jehovah gives to his people, even in the midst of the most trying circumstances. End of quote. I, I love that quote. <laughs> you say that I about do. all of his. <laughs> I do. I love it. Me too. And this magnificent picture comes on the heels of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. While we're in the midst of trials and even devastation, we need to know that God has a table prepared for us. And this isn't just a table with a modest offering. This is a feast. Our cups are overflowing. God is giving us love and peace with him in abundance. He's pouring out his goodness onto his people, onto us. And he's doing it all the time. Be assured that even if it feels that God is nowhere to be found, he is there blessing you so much that your cup is overflowing. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 has been called by John Calvin, a verse that shows God's complete attributes better than any other. It says, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children until the third and to the fourth generation, end of quote. Of all the attributes of God that Moses lists, he makes it a special point of saying that God has goodness and truth in abundance. This means that he has more than we could ever possibly need. No wonder our cup is overflowing. And the best part is that he sets this magnificent table for us in the presence of our enemies. God blesses his people, and there's nothing their enemies can do about it. God's people can feast at his table of endless love and grace, and no enemy of any sort can ever take it away. They can only feel annoyed that we were victorious and prosperous in spite of them. And Rose, that reminds me of the picture in Revelation where the heavens are open, the two witnesses have been taken up, and the wicked look up. Yes. You know, can't wait some days. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Yep. So God also anoints our heads with oil. This is God setting us aside for himself. He's marking us as his. In the Bible, anointing with oil is always used for healing, blessing, and for setting aside something as holy. James 5.14 shows it being used for healing. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Hebrews 1 verse 9 shows it as a blessing for God's people. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then Exodus 30, 31 to 32 shows anointing with oil as a sign of being holy and set apart. And it says, and you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. So does the anointing of our heads with oil in Psalm 23 indicate God is giving us healing, blessing, or setting us aside to be holy as he's holy? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. It's always yes. Yes to all three. Yes. <laughs> and finally, David sums up this beautiful tribute to God's goodness with which is perhaps one of the most beautiful lines in scripture. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we belong to God, we can have peace and we can have confidence that we are never away from his goodness or his mercy. He is always with us and he is always dispensing both on us to the point where our cups are overflowing. Amen to that. And it makes me think of Isaiah 43, verses two to three, which says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Love that. So now given all we know about what's behind the words of Psalm 23, let's recite it again. And just let the beautiful truth of the goodness of God just wash over you. I'm going to read it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. We looked at the greatness of God in the last episode. Because of his greatness, he's due all the glory and all the honor. We're just an insignificant part of his creation, but that's not how our God sees us. We serve and belong to a God who, while he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present, he's also good. He loves, protects, guides, and cares for his children. He should be getting all the honor, yet as Psalm 23 shows us, he gives us honor. He guides us in the right way to go. He prepares a table for us. He deals with our enemies for us. He saves us. It's really mind-blowing. It is. We're encouraging you this week to memorize Psalm 23. Meditate on its beautiful truths and let them fill you and transform you. And may we all bring glory to God by resting in those words. Have a blessed day, everybody. 